Matthew 9, verses 9 through 13. If you're able, please stand with me as we read God's word together. All right. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with other tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Aaron, if you want to come on up for you, I'll pray for you, brother. Father, you are good. In your goodness, you bring the rain and you make it rain on everyone. You bring the sun and you make it shine on all faces. Father, would you this morning give us a glimpse into the need that each one of us has for you, regardless of how healthy we may feel on the outside, God. Um, we know that, that we are sick or we have been and that you came uh, to heal us. So show us more about that. Show us more about your love this morning. Be with my brother Aaron as he brings your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning, Karis. Uh, Bobby and Ben are not going to like me saying this, but there's always a small part of me that kind of likes when the bulb in the projector goes out or when the guitar string breaks on stage or when the... Um, Singer gets laryngitis the night before. Um, I mean, I don't like that you have laryngitis, but... <laughs> because it reminds me that uh, even, even right now, our worship is, in a way, flawed sometimes. Even now, our worship is not perfected. Uh, and when we sing together and everything's going off without a hitch, we maybe can trick ourselves into thinking that it is. Uh, but it, when the bulb goes out, when something happens... Um, it makes me think, like, one day in God's new creation, like, the bulb in the projector will never go out again. You know, there won't be a need for a sun or a moon or a light bulb in the projector because the king will be our light. Um, the guitar string's never going to break. Uh, the Holy Spirit will lead us in worship, and his voice will never go dry. Good to see you this morning. That's not part of the sermon, I just wanted to riff for a second. His famous story, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, author C.S. Lewis, he tells a story about how a group of siblings discover and then help save the world of Narnia. In this strange world, it's discovered by the youngest sister, Lucy, when she walks through the back of an enchanted wardrobe and into a snowy forest. When she returns home, she tells her brothers and sister, and they do not believe her one bit. In fact, one of her brothers, Edmund, mocks her repeatedly. And as a gag, he even goes into the wardrobe sarcastically, only to discover that Narnia is actually real. But his first experience is much different than Lucy's, because instead of encountering kind woodland creatures, he meets the White Witch, 
who is the you know, wicked ruler of Narnia. The witch sees these siblings and realizes that uh, they may well be a threat to her power. And so she convinces Edmund to sell out his other three siblings in exchange for this weird Middle Eastern candy called Turkish Delight. I've never had it, but if you'd be willing to sell out your siblings for it, it must be good. And now his character develops throughout the story, but that moment where he agrees to sell out his siblings is undoubtedly one of the sneakiest acts of sibling treachery. In 1780, commander-in-chief of the Continental Army, George Washington, he appoints a new commander for a key strategic fort in West Point, New York. This fort was identified by Washington as perhaps one of the most important strategic positions during the American Revolution. So naturally, he chooses his most trusted major general to assume command, a guy by the name of Benedict Arnold. Shortly after assuming control of West Point, uh, Arnold begins to plot a way to betray the Continental Army, to strategically weaken and ultimately surrender West Point to the British Army. Ultimately, though, his plot gets discovered. It does not succeed, but Benedict Arnold, whose very name is synonymous with backstabbing, has undoubtedly gone down in history as one of the greatest traitors. Bridging the world of history and literature, taking us all the way back to the ancient world. In 44 BC, Julius Caesar is becoming increasingly tyrannical with hopes to end the Roman Republic and establish himself as Rome's first emperor. As you might imagine, the other senators in Rome are not too pleased with that idea. So one senator and general, Cassius, he begins to organize a conspiracy to assassinate Caesar. He recruits a group of about 60 other senators to participate in this plot. One of those co-conspirators is a politician named Brutus, who Caesar has been a friend and a benefactor towards. Brutus is conflicted. Is he going to turn on his friend and go along with the assassination? Or is he going to turn his back on his country and allow it to be taken over by a man who just gave himself the title dictator for life? So on March 15th, 44 BC, these 60 senators make their move and kill Julius Caesar, stabbing him 23 times. In his poetic retelling of the story, uh, William Shakespeare puts those famous last words in Caesar's mouth as he sees his friend in the brutal gang. Et tu, Brute? That's Latin. In English, it's you too, Brutus, or even you, Brutus. Dramatized or not, uh, this incident is widely regarded as one of the most infamous betrayals of all time. So where are we going this morning? And what do these three prominent betrayals have to do with our passage? Well, I bring them up because the headspace that I want us to be in this morning to understand this passage is one of loyalty versus betrayal, faithfulness versus treachery. I want us to use our sanctified imaginations. I guess it's maybe good that the screen is not working. Uh, You won't be distracted. You can just close your eyes and imagine I want us to use our sanctified imaginations to put ourselves in these scenes, seeing these interactions from uh, different points of view of the characters. What we're going to see this morning is that Jesus' mission is to reconcile with renegades, 
to bring back backstabbers and to turn towards turncoats. He's going to pursue with his healing and restoring love the people in our world who seem the most wicked. So let's get into our verses then. As we examine our passage, we're going to see kind of three distinct movements. In verses 9 and 10, Jesus' kingdom is breaking down barriers and creating a new reality that is centered around him. Jesus is creating a new reality. In verse 11, we see the Pharisees' reaction to this new reality. Maybe you can guess how they feel already. In verses 12 and 13, Jesus will respond to their reaction with a scathing critique. But in each of these movements, I want us to kind of play a little game of guess who. See if we can guess who the traitor is in each of these movements. So look down at your Bibles, uh, whatever page Seth said to look at. Look at your Bibles, look at verse 9, here's what it says. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. So much amazing stuff going on in here. First off, let's establish our context. As Jesus passed on from there, where's there? Well, last week, Pastor Jeff preached to us about how Jesus caused quite the hubbub in his hometown by healing and forgiving the sins of a paralyzed man. So Jesus is heading out of town, and he passes by a tax booth. Now, in many ways, the process of taxation is very similar between 1st century Rome, 21st century America. Um, Obviously, there's different kinds of taxes on different kinds of goods and processes. Income taxes, sales tax, property taxes, and so on into infinity. Being on the edge of town, this tax booth is likely a customs or tariffs tax booth. And ultimately, like every tax that's ever existed, you know, the tax collector says, I'm going to take some of your stuff or I'm going to send someone to your house to hurt you badly. The big difference between today and back then, though, is who's imposing these taxes and what are they being used to do? I brought up George Washington, the American Revolution, a minute ago. What was the big injustice that they felt back then? They were experiencing taxation without representation. Yeah, good job. Uh, They said, at the very least, you know, people should get a say in how their government treats them. Fast forward 250 years, here we are. In the first century, though, that's not how it worked at all. Matthew was not collecting taxes as an elected or appointed official of the Judeans so that King Herod could, you know, expand education access to rural Galileans. Rather, Matthew is a defector. As a Jew, he has turned his back on his people and sided with the empire that was colonizing his country. And those taxes, they're not going towards uh, the betterment of the people around him. They're being used so that Rome can tighten their stranglehold on this territory and become more efficient and more effective at crushing rebellion. I read one commentary this week that was written by a Zimbabwean scholar. He said that Matthew's neighbors would have thought about him the same way that uh, his neighbors think about those native Africans who helped sell their brothers and sisters into the slave trade. And if that wasn't bad enough, 
We know that from other gospel stories, that it was not uncommon for tax collectors to uh, collect more than they were authorized to. It helps when you kind of can just point a Roman soldier wherever you want. They would take more than they were authorized and then pocket the rest for themselves. If you watch the TV show, The Chosen, it's a great show, I like it. They kind of portray Matthew as this uh, like socially aloof number cruncher who pretty much just tattles on people to the Romans. Uh, but I think perhaps more likely, we ought to picture Matthew as this gruff, muscle-bound mobster type shaking down folks on their way in and out of town. In the minds of his neighbors, tax collectors were like Edmund from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, traitors who were selling out their own brothers and sisters. So Jesus is walking out of town, passes by the customs booth, and I don't know how many disciples Jesus has yet at this point in the story, but however many disciples there were, uh, they're either trying not to be singled out by the brute, or perhaps plotting a way to get back at him for what he had done to their families. But then Jesus stops. He looks this greedy guy right in the eye and extends him an invitation. That word right there in verse 9, Jesus called. It doesn't quite have the same uh, theological punch here that it does maybe when someone like Paul uses that word. When Paul talks about God calling people to himself, it's what we call an effectual call, a call that has an effect. It brings people from death to life. That call makes spiritual orphans members of God's family. It's a call that acts upon the one who is called. Amen. And Jesus could have done that, I suppose. Uh, made that effectual call to Matthew, but instead he uses a different kind of call, an invitation. He says, Matthew, I want you to follow me. Matthew, will you follow me? Matthew, how about you come and follow me? And then who knows how long that moment was between the follow me and the he rose and followed him in verse 9. Use your imaginations. Put yourself in that moment. Did Matthew hop right up, follow after Jesus? Did he do some number crunching, weigh his career options in that moment? Did he sit there in silence, trying to avoid making any more eye contact with this wandering teacher? Jesus' disciples are off to the side. They're in disbelief. Is he serious right now? This guy shook down my dad for an extra barrel of figs just last week. He's going to sell us out to the Romans. He's crazy. What's Jesus doing? Maybe, maybe Matthew declines the invitation at first, telling the rabbi, just keep on going. Keep on moving, man. Jesus, maybe he respects that decision, starts to get the group going, and as they go over, start to go over the hill, Matthew's heart starts to melt. He thinks, the way that he looked at me with kindness, the gentleness in his invitation. He's just sitting there stewing. I don't know what this is all about, but I know that I can't miss out on it. And so he springs up. As he throws his cloak on, he knocks the coins off of the tax booth. The disciples, they'd been 
breathing a huge sigh of relief that Matthew didn't initially come with them, but now they turn around in frustration when they hear those clattering coins. But Jesus looks back with a welcoming smile. And this guy, this tax collector, this brute, sprints towards the group. What do you think, church? Here's what Jesus thought. It's about time for dinner, right? You guys hungry? Matthew, he gets there, he's, you know, hands on his knees, exhausted from the sprint, running on pure adrenaline from this decision he's just made. He blurts out, well, I mean, I was going to have some friends over tonight if you guys just want to eat at my place. And uh, Jesus is overjoyed. He accepts the invitation without hesitation, even though the disciples are giving him the, no way. Look at verse 10. Look down at verse 10. As Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Carus, this is the new reality that Jesus creates in his kingdom. Look at it. Here's the key word that paints the picture for us. Jesus reclined. Tax collectors and sinners reclined with Jesus. That's generally how people ate in the first century. They didn't have dining room sets with chairs. They all laid on the ground, but they reclined together. Here's something that happens uh, to me not infrequently. When I meet someone new, maybe I'm, at like a, maybe I'm with Caitlin at one of her you know, business networking events. I meet someone new. We get to the point in the conversation where we're asking each other, what do you do? What do you do? And I get to tell them, oh, yeah, I'm a pastor over at Cars Church. And then let me tell you, there are very few things that kill a conversation Faster than uh, telling someone you've just met that you're a pastor. You just kind of feel the energy come right out of the interaction. And things get really awkward. Most of the time. People think that they have to stop being themselves around you. you we've been talking for 15, 20 minutes already. And now all of a sudden, the F-bombs have noticeably changed to, good golly, gosh darn it's. Someone else comes up to join the conversation. Hey, man, how's it going? You know, are we still going to Logboat Brewery uh, after this thing? Uh, I hear the tasting room is open back up, and they give the no way gesture. They look at me like, oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, I just wanted to see the new construction. I hear it's pretty cool looking. I mean, I definitely don't drink. I was just want to be like, oh, man, that's too bad, because there is very few things more refreshing in the summer than one of those pineapple snappers. That's not the scene here, though, with Jesus and his new friends. They're not on pins and needles. They're reclining together over a good meal. And you know it's a good meal because all these tax collectors, they had just gotten their hands on an extra barrel of juicy figs last week. Maybe they started the interaction on pins and needles. One of Matthew's prostitute friends leans over. Matt, what's with the... Uh, R-A-B-B-I. Matthew's starting to realize the awkwardness of the situation he's created, wondering if he should offer Jesus a glass of wine or not. Jesus goes, oh, did, did you not hear Thaddeus' story about this wedding we went to in Cana last week? This is the new reality that Jesus is creating. 
in this first movement of our passage. In this first movement of our passage, it's pretty easy to guess who the traders are, right? They're the ones whose pockets are filled with foreign money. They're the ones whose stomachs are filled with stolen figs. They're the ones who are reclining at the dinner table with Jesus. So the second movement starts when some new characters join the party. Look down at verse 11 with me. Verse 11 says, When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? This new reality that Jesus is creating does not sit well with everyone, it seems. The Pharisees have quite the reaction when they learn that an important regional rabbi is partying down the street with tax collectors and sinners. For those of you who have waited tables in the past, or wait tables now, have you ever had a table like this? When they want something, it it becomes the most important need on planet Earth. When they want something, they catch your eye from all the way across the dining room and give you one of these. (laughs) I get the idea with this interaction that maybe a couple of Pharisees, they poke their heads into Matthew's house through the window. They see one of Jesus' disciples, let's just say, let's say Bartholomew. He doesn't have any stories about him. They see Bartholomew looking so uncomfortable as he sits between a tax collector and a dirty pig farmer. He catches their come hither from the corner of his eye, and he is excited to have a reason to leave this interaction. He gets up, he goes away. The Pharisees grab him like, tell us, why is your teacher eating with these tax collectors and sinners? That's how bad everyone thought tax collectors were. It wasn't enough that they would say sinners, like, and they would just be lumped in. It was like, sinners, but especially the tax collectors. Time out. Let's take a time out for a second. It's really easy for us to read the Gospels and uh, be super hard on the Pharisees. It is easy. But let's try and empathize, even with the Pharisees, for just a second. Who are these guys? What do they actually believe? And why are they always getting into confrontations with Jesus? You see, in Jesus' day, there's kind of four branches, four sects, four denominations, if you will, of Judaism. I put them up on the screen, but they're not there. You'll have to write them down. Just briefly, you've got these guys called Essenes. You can think about them like the Amish. They're separatists. They uh, remove themselves from society because they think everyone does everything wrong except us. And we're going to do it right in our own place. And then one day, God's going to give us the kingdom first. They actually never pop up in the New Testament because uh, by the time Jesus rolls around, they already live out in the desert. So they never interact with Jesus. Then you've got these other guys, zealots. One of these guys will pop up in the book of Matthew in just a few weeks. You can think of zealots as religious extremists and terrorists. They thought that God's kingdom would come when we forcibly purge the land of Roman occupation. They were assassins. They tried to start riots and revolutions. Then you've got the Sadducees. We see them pop up, not infrequently, in the New Testament. Think of them as cultural compromisers. They put up with Roman rule and thought, well, as long as we have, you know, a little bit of power and influence, 
At least things aren't as bad as they could be. We better hold on to the little piece of God's kingdom that we have, even if it means deferring to the Romans. And then lastly, the ones we see the most, the Pharisees. The Pharisees look back into their own history. They are serious Bible scholars. They look back into their own history and see God judged us and sent us into exile because we were repeatedly unfaithful to the Old Testament. So they decide. This is what they base their whole, you know, thing around. If we want to see God's kingdom come, we need to make sure that we are rigorously devoted to obeying God's instructions. In their minds, unfaithfulness to God's instructions, it meant it was keeping all the Jewish people from experiencing God's kingdom. So when you see the tax collectors and sinners, they didn't just see personal sin. They looked at those folks as if they were Benedict Arnold's, betraying the whole nation every day, over and over and over again. Maybe knowing that mindset can help us to relate to the Pharisees a little bit. Because it seems like every week I see in, I see op-eds and the news on TV, on Twitter, where one side of the political aisle is going on about the other side, being you know, a threat to democracy, compromising the heart of our nation, costing us the soul of America, trampling over the values that they think we ought to have. At the root of all, the, at the root of all those complaints, we think that those who live immorally, or those who at least don't live the way we want them to live, are keeping us all from experiencing the good that's out there. That's, that's at the heart of that. Why in the world, the Pharisees say, why in the world would your teacher associate himself with those people? The ones who are constantly breaking God's law, who aren't worried about being religiously pure, who, aren't, uh, who are keeping us from finally experiencing God's kingdom. Can you guess who the traitor is in the second movement? Or rather, who the Pharisees think is the traitor? They think it's Jesus. They think it's Jesus. When he hears this accusation, though, he's quick to come in and respond. He's going to set the record straight in the final movement of our passage. Let's take a look back at verses 12 and 13, if you've got your Bibles open still. Verses 12 and 13 say, But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And there's like so much to unpack. So much to unpack here. Jesus responds with just three short sentences. Let's take a look at them. The first and the last sentence, they mirror each other pretty clearly, don't they? Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. I know there are more than a few folks here this morning who work in the healthcare industry. Uh, doctors, nurses, administrators, others. Who do you see more of during your workday? Perfectly healthy people or sick and injured individuals? Now, obviously today, 
We do a lot more preventative care than they did 2,000 years ago. But I think you probably get my point. Just look back at the last few passages that we've been in the last couple weeks. Jesus doesn't cleanse people with clear skin. He cleanses lepers. Jesus doesn't loosen the legs of ultra-marathon runners. He commands the paralyzed to walk. Just like when the young boy Jesus explained to his mother why he had stayed behind in the temple, the good physician, he looks at the Pharisees and says, where else should I be right now? I'm about my father's business. You've seen me here heal the physically sick. Now I'm here to save the spiritually sick. You know, those tax collectors and sinners you're so worried are messing it up for you and your righteous buddies. But that's not all Jesus has to say, this uh, defense of his, his ministry. He also has a challenge and a charge for the Pharisees. Right there in the middle, he tells them, Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I love this. It's such a great response. Go and learn. Go and learn was a phrase that the Pharisees liked to use. They said it often to their followers. The Pharisees would have their own band of disciples, and one of the ways they would teach was by assigning homework. They would say to their students, you've yet to grasp this part of God's word. You don't understand. Grab your scroll, go home, study before coming back here. Jesus tells these guys, look, I know y'all figure yourself as Bible experts and whatnot, but um, I've got some homework for you. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Church, if Jesus says something is important to learn, then we probably better learn it, right? So let's learn what this means about what God desires. Jesus is referencing here the book of Hosea. Chapter 6, verse 6. Go ahead and turn there in your Bibles, if, if you will. If you've never read the book of Hosea, it's a prophetic book that God gives to his people in the nations of Israel and Judah in the Old Testament. Over and over and over, God's people are uh, unfaithful to him, worshiping other gods, breaking his commands. The prophet Hosea, he uses his own life and family as an object lesson for how the people continue to treat God. And it's pretty sad, if we're being honest. But anyway, let's read this passage that Jesus is referencing what God says to the people in chapter 6. I'm going to read some more verses surrounding it. But here's the passage Jesus is quoting from. Verses 4 through 6. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? That's another word for Israel. What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Therefore, I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth. And my judgment goes forth as the light. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Maybe you notice a little difference there between Matthew's version and Hosea's version. If you drill down into those words, mercy, steadfast love, 
what you find is this idea of covenant love or covenant faithfulness. That's right. The very thing that the Pharisees were so concerned with and judged everyone else over was this, was this issue of their covenant faithfulness to bring about God's kingdom. They thought, well, Jesus must be a traitor because he's hanging out with these traitors. And Jesus turns around to them and says, you think that because you go to the temple and do your sacrifices so perfectly that God is pleased with you? What he wants is your heart. What he really wants is for you not to commit the sins that require a sacrifice in the first place. This is a huge distinction between Judaism and Christianity and every other sacrificial religion throughout history. In other religions, it's the God or the gods who need the sacrifice. The sacrifice is for them. For whatever reason, whatever the mythology, they need the meat of the animal or the blood or the incense or whatever thing was sacrificed. But not our God. Not the God of the Bible. In Psalm 50, I love this. This is one of my favorite passages. In Psalm 50, God tells his people, he says, Every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. God doesn't need anything. That's kind of what makes him God, or at least part of what makes him God. You might hear a critic of Christianity say something like, well, I don't know about the God of the Bible. I have a hard time believing that God needed or wanted to sacrifice his own son. But there's the fundamental misunderstanding about our God. It's not God who needed the animal sacrifices in the Old Testament, and it's not God who needed his only son to be sacrificed in the New Testament. It was you who needed the sacrifice. It was us. What God wanted was for us to be in his presence and a part of his family, but sinful humans can't do that on our own. We need something to cover for, to pay for, our sins. The sacrifices is for us. God says, I want mercy. I want steadfast love. I want covenant faithfulness. The sacrifice exists for when you don't do those things. I don't want the sacrifice. I want you to be loyal. I want you to love me. So Jesus claps back at the Pharisees. Making the right sacrifices to cover for your sins is not what God has in mind when he desires your covenant loyalty. You see, the Pharisees rightly saw that the tax collectors and sinners were traitors, but then they wrongly assumed that Jesus was a traitor for eating dinner with them, but then they also wrongly assumed that they were being loyal to God in the way they were supposed to. Jesus turns things around. And in this last movement of the passage, he forces them to play the game of guess who, and they see their faces on the board. 
So where do we go from here? Where do we go from here, Cars? Well, this morning I want to leave you with two points of application from our passage. One external and one internal. Let's start with the external. We must find ways to practice Christ-like hospitality. Christ-like hospitality. What do I mean by that? When we think of hospitality, uh, mostly today we think of hosting our friends over at our house, maybe during our MC, maybe inviting some folks over to watch the game. And that is part of hospitality. But the Bible takes hospitality to another level. What the Bible means when we see that word hospitality is primarily outsider-oriented. It's about being welcoming towards people you do not know, not just people you already know. Are we going out of our way to engage people in a way that they feel welcome in our presence? Maybe that's here on a Sunday morning. Do you go out of your way to make someone feel welcomed and comfortable? Maybe you're new here this morning and you're thinking, yeah, I got mobbed by like three different people right before the welcome. Please don't tell more people to come find me after the gathering. That's fair. Sometimes being hospitable is also realizing when someone is just ready to go to lunch after church. Maybe hospitality in your MC looks like being a place where it's easy for a new person to come in and build relationships. I know that we all have our BFF in our different MCs, and that's awesome. I love that. But we also have to be careful to make sure that you and your BFF uh, are intentional that, when, that someone new is able to come in and build similar relationships. One of the great dangers with any model of church small groups is that they can become cliquish, hard for people to come into. MC leaders, MC members, don't let that happen in your group. Now, notice what I said a second ago. I don't just want to challenge us to practice biblical hospitality, but to practice Christ-like hospitality. Jesus always takes things up a notch. Jesus always takes things to the next level. Because in our passage, Jesus isn't being hospitable by having people in his space. He's being hospitable in Matthew's space. And who is Jesus being hospitable towards? He's showing hospitality to outsiders, yeah. But they're not outsiders because they're strangers or new people that you've never met. People know who Matthew and his tax collector friends are, and not for good reasons. Jesus, in our passage, he's like this mobile, um, hospitable hospital. He's taking biblical hospitality, making people feel welcome and comfortable, wherever he goes, not just to whoever comes to him. It's missional. Christ-like hospitality is missional. Now, unless we confuse Christ-like hospitality with um, blind affirmation, we also have to remember that Jesus' call is always to one of repentance from sin. Look back at verse 12. It says, When Jesus heard it, he said... Not when he heard it, he pulled the Pharisees aside into a separate room and said, hey, let's, you know, let me, let's talk about this. But it seems like when Jesus was hanging out with Matthew and his friends, Jesus overhears the Pharisees' complaint. 
and responds then. When Pastor Kevin and I, we were in Omaha for an Acts 29 conference recently, one of the speakers pointed this out. Jesus says what he says in front of his fellow dinner guests. It's not the healthy that need a doctor, but the sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, but the sinners. And Matthew still follows this guy. Matthew still follows Jesus. There's something about the love and kindness and gentleness and the goodness of Jesus where he can be frank about calling people to leave sin that also doesn't alienate them from him at the same time. And I'm not going to pretend like I'm always like this, like I'm the best at this. I don't always know how to strike that balance. But that is the essence of Christ-like hospitality. One of my favorite authors and theologians, Preston Sprinkle, he likes to say, our truth will not be heard until our grace is felt. Christian hospitality. Our truth will not be heard until our grace is felt. If people haven't felt your grace, when you hit them, not literally, when they hear the truth but don't experience the grace, they might not stick around. Jesus here, they feel the grace. And so when his truth is made known, there's still nothing to run from. The tension and uh, the need for church introspection is addressed by the late Tim Keller when he says in his book, The Prodigal God, he says this, the kind of outsiders that Jesus attracted are not attracted to contemporary churches, even our most avant-garde ones. We tend to draw conservative, buttoned-down, moralistic people the licentious, the liberated, the broken and marginal avoid church. That can only mean one thing. If the preaching of our ministers and the practice of our parishioners, that's good writing. If the preaching of our ministers and the practice of our parishioners do not have the same effect on people that Jesus had, then we must not be declaring the same message that Jesus did. If our churches aren't appealing to tax collectors and sinners, then they must be more full of Pharisees than we'd like to think. Carus, we must practice Christ-like hospitality of Jesus, where all are welcome and safe to enjoy a life-changing, heart-transforming meal with him. Church, if there is a specific person or a specific type of person who is not welcome in our church, at our MCs, in our living rooms, or around our dining room tables, then that is a person we can fundamentally not reach with the gospel. Let me say that again. If there is a specific person or type of person who is not welcome in our church, our MC, our living room, around our dinner table, then that is a person who we can fundamentally not reach with the gospel. May it never be. Second point of application then, one for us to apply internally to our own souls. We must excavate and eradicate the Pharisee in our own hearts. For Matthew and the tax collectors and sinners, 
It was probably, honestly, not a shock to hear Jesus' words about their spiritual sickness. They heard it every day from the people that they hurt. But imagine the offense the Pharisees must have felt. They thought they were the ones who finally had it all figured out. They were the ones who thought they were doing everything right. It made them arrogant and judgmental towards those that they saw as traitors. And if we're not careful, we can become so accustomed to being a member of God's family that our hearts begin to bend that way as well. You roll your eyes and look down on your friends who uh, make this pride post or don't make that pride post. Or you write your social media, or you write off your family member as a lost cause because they have a truth social account. Really, this goes hand in hand with Christian hospitality. If you are a Christian, you do not get to look at anyone else with derision like that. You don't get to sit back and rest on your laurels knowing that you've got it all figured out. Because you probably don't. Until the last day, until the day when God raises us from the dead, none of us have fully arrived. We're not in a position to judge the traitors we think we see around us because ultimately, we were all traitors at one point. You and me, we're the traitors that Jesus came to bring back into his kingdom. At the heart of the gospel is this, church. When Jesus was nailed to the cross, he didn't look at those nails in his hands the way Caesar looked at those knives his assassins struck him with. Jesus didn't utter in confusion, shock, and horror, et tu, Brute? You too? Even you? How could you? I thought we were friends. I thought you had my back. Jesus wasn't shocked by his own betrayal, and he knew the cross was coming, and he still went there willingly to be the sacrifice that you and I so desperately needed. He didn't say, you too, but rather, yes, you too. This sacrifice is for you too, Matthew, even you, tax collectors, even you, sinners, even you, Karis Church. Jesus, the great physician, died so that he could take your sin and spiritual sickness so that when he rose from the grave, he could share healing and new creation life with you in its place. Let's pray. Father, we praise you and we thank you this morning. We thank you for Jesus, for sending him to rescue us and reclaim us when we were running away from you. God, when we turned our backs on you, on your life and your commands, God, you didn't give up on us, but you made a way for us to be brought back to you. God, would you transform our hearts to be like Jesus' heart, to be welcoming to our friends, our neighbors, to strangers, and even to our enemies. God, drill deep into our souls and show us the places we, where we're judgmental and want to seek to push people out of your kingdom. Convict us of that. Jesus, as we continue to worship this morning around your supper, would you grant us unity by your spirit, a greater experience of unity with you, and a deeper unity with one another. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.